I just finished a run in the woods. I feel fantastic. I feel alive. Um, my heart rate has been pumping. So I'm, I'm ready. Is it raining or did you shower? It is raining, but it's a sprinkle, so it, it feels fantastic on your face. I even took off my beanie to let my hair flow in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Must be nice, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I won't make that a bit unless you guys do. So we're, we're good on that front. Well, fair enough. Mm. Occasionally. Humor is the only real way to deal with the sort of despair of hair loss. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, say yeah, we I'm feel t- more of a breeze than you do. So honestly, we're ahead. A bit ahead, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got two months until the church play, um, and then after that, we'll see what happens. Monica is actually saying she likes the hair long, so I might. Well, I don't know. I might keep it. We'll see. Oh, that's what this is for. Oh, it's not just for yeah. funsies. Oh. Um, I, it was an excuse. I'm like, ah, I'll, I'll grow it out for a church play, and then. I like it, so maybe I'll keep it. We'll see. I'm playing a disciple, and I like to think of myself as the beloved disciple, even though I don't necessarily have a name. <laughs> so John, disciple John. My brother plays Lucifer. Oh, that's a good role. He gets a lot of jokes throughout the year. <laughs> Does he do it every year? It's three, four years in a row now. Typecast. <laughs> like he actually really enjoys acting so he just puts himself fully into this like you know it's you need the villain you need the hero so he, he does a great job uh, well anyways welcome everybody to episode this is episode 19 of ultra pro max this is the podcast where we talk about app development and the apple ecosystem and we've got a very special exciting uh bit in the apple ecosystem this week it's kind of been all over the internet all the youtubers are out in force on the streets of new york wearing these things <laughs> Uh, soon to be joined by our very own Joshua taking to the streets. It's an interesting question of, I could not justify the after tax and after a few other things, the $4,000 cost, even though I've been thinking about it since June, it just didn't make sense. I, I could not find any way to justify it. With that said, let's, let's set that aside because it comes up in every single bloody conversation about the Vision Pro. Um, work bought a couple of them, so I'm splitting it with one of my colleagues and I got to try it on for Friday. He's he's on a business trip, so he took it with him, and he's so excited to wear it on an airplane. So I want to hear how that experience went. Wow! Um, so I got to try it before he left, and I wrote about this on my blog that I don't think I synced it up properly. I don't think I went through the proper setup. So there appears to be a slight. It was made for his face and not mine, so I think it might have been a little off because the entire experience was just slightly blurry. Which made me nauseous at the end. However, in the time I was there, so I wrote about that in detail. We don't need to dwell on that unless there's questions. But I just felt this massive smile on my face as I started to open up the apps and just experience dinosaurs, the dinosaur encounter where it's prehistoric planet from Apple TV, 30 foot screen and little dinosaurs walking and one of them just stares at you, makes eye contact and that was terrifying. I just felt this moment of like, do I need to hide? This, <laughs> you know, six foot dinosaur is just staring right at me as part of a pack. That is very unsettling. And then I was able to skip through and uh, get into Safari and pull up my website as one does and see text on a massive 10 foot screen. And that was pretty cool. And the we can get into it if it's relevant, but there were some little quirks and things I wasn't expecting that were a little bit odd. But overall, I quickly found myself able to look somewhere, 
interact, move forward, uh, move a screen around, push it around, make it bigger if I needed to. That part felt good. Like when you first pick up an iPhone and you're able to push your thumb around and just start moving stuff around, even if you don't really know what to do, right? You don't know where the hidden menus are. You don't know all the affordances, but that core affordance is pretty good. And I'm pretty happy with that. With that said, there were a few times where I intended to tap something by, uh, for those who don't know, you, you pinch your forefinger, your thumb and your forefinger together, which is you look at a button, pinch those together, and that makes the button do something that that performs the action. There were a few times where I was trying and nothing happened. So I wasn't sure if the eye tracking maybe wasn't set to me just right because it would maybe have a slight delay. So I'll be curious when I get a proper fitting if those things will be addressed. But overall, the next thing I'm going to try this week is I want to try to use it on a Mac and try to just see what that experience is like. I... I texted you both a picture. I look ridiculous. It looks absolutely hilarious. I texted my brother a picture, and he thought I was going skiing. He genuinely thought I was wearing ski goggles. Um, <laughs> and it took him a moment to realize what that was. So that uh, overall, um, I'm happy to, if you have any questions, but overall, I'm I'm quite intrigued by this experience. It's like a little cyber astronaut. We need to put that, that photo into the show notes. I, I gave you permission to, Sadia, even though I think it looks ridiculous <laughs> if, if you if you want to put it in there. I'll see what I can do. So you said that you had some issues with tracking and some issues with motion sickness. I noticed that it wasn't as precise as I was hoping, meaning with a mouse pointer, I expect absolute precision. And I I think John Gruber touched on this in much more detail. Um, With my thumb on an iPad, I don't expect a ton of precision. And I thought it would land somewhere in there. And it was more on the thumb scale with me where I I would kind of have to look at something and look for longer than I thought before it would hover or highlight and then I could tap on it. And then, and I didn't get into this part yet, overall, as soon as you put it on, you can see the room around you exactly as is. But the room was darker than I expected and it was a pretty well-lit room and everything had a slight, um, almost like when you're watching a movie on YouTube and it drops all the blacks down, and they get all a little bit fuzzy around the edge. Um, it had this slight blurriness to it that I wasn't expecting. Like a compression. Yes, yes, there was a compression. Since this headset wasn't fitted for you, and you weren't using the, I don't know if you were using the right size of face mask, and the, I get the impression that there's some sort of setup in the beginnings of it to set the interpupillary distance do you know does the apple vision pro have motors that control the distance between lenses i don't know about the distance between lenses but i do know that it adjusts for if you have put lenses in from your eyeball to the glass that it will adjust that way Um, so my colleague wears glasses he took out the inserts for me to put it on and i noticed it thought it was expecting someone with inserts then it adjusted and suddenly I could see everything. So I'm wondering if it did not adjust enough. And then I saw that what you can do is you can have two personas, one with glasses, one without glasses. So what we're going to do is we're going to set it up so that my persona is without glasses. Another one of my colleagues had the same issue. So what he did is his wife became the 
one of the personas, he's the other. And he said she can now see perfectly in it after they had to tweak it for a little bit to get it to scan her as the secondary face on the device. Yeah. And now she's been able to use it. So I think that probably the interpupillary distance plays a part because I know that that will also contribute to motion sickness as well if you don't have your IPD set properly. That uh, is a good thing to test next because I found myself already slightly hesitating to try it again because I didn't want to be sick for 30 minutes afterward. It felt like getting off an airplane. And so I think that's going to be critical for me. Otherwise, I don't want to be dreading using this device. Um, Luke, you had a question, I think? Well, I was just wondering how many, because the personas is kind of the game changer that we were worried about before. Do you know how many personas you can fit on that thing? Apparently, and maybe Sadia knows more, you have main, guest, and then main without glasses. So kind of like two and a half. Gotcha. Kind of meant to be one and a half, really. Yes. Because the guest isn't even really, it's not personizable to a person. It's just a wide open, share it with your friend kind of situation. Can't sign in with your Apple ID. Yes. So what we're going to try to do, um, and this is this will be the the pass off will be interesting. We might just find it's better for one of us just to have it for months on end that it, passing it off just gets ridiculous. So we're going to test it out. But what we're going to try to do is make it so it's in his Apple ID, his work account somewhat. Um, and we just we have a lot of trust with each other. And then I will be the person without glasses. That's what we're going to try to do and just see how that goes. And I don't know if I could trust someone with my Apple ID. That's a, that's a tall order. Yeah, that was the one thing that you said you wouldn't put into a password manager, potentially. Yeah. Yikes. That persona thing kind of annoys me because this thing is 3500 bucks, and it's like just a jab at the user just saying they're expecting only one person at a time to use this thing. And we've been buying you know personal computers for forever, or we've been buying like shared personal computers that are like the same cost or substantially less. And everybody kind of understands that like a whole family could use this machine if they wanted to. And so it's something that's priced even more than that. I mean, do you think they're going to they're gonna have to add more personas in the future, right? It just seems kind of ridiculous to assume. Every single device since the Mac has been single user, right? We've got the watches. We've got the iPads, the iPhones. Uh, they are single user and now the Vision Pro. So the pattern is actually single user. The... The challenge is is the price, right? Because yeah. I don't mind buying my son a three hundred dollar iPad for him to use as a single user. I I can swing that thirty five hundred. I'm not going to swing that now. If they can get to the point where there's a Vision Air for fourteen ninety nine, th- then it becomes in the realm of okay, my wife could use this for some justifiable reason. Let's get her a second one. That starts to become somewhat feasible at that point, but. And I wrote about this in my post. I think 90% of people, their first experience will be someone they know, and then they try it. I've already had most of my friends that have found about it in in town are like, hey, I want to get to try it. Let me know when you will have it. I want to try it. So I'm going to probably have 10 friends who will try it out, and they will have vastly different experiences based on their head shape and their eyes. And are they going to all come away disappointed because of that? As an aside, I have been watching Vision Pro reviews this week and my 12-year-old son kind of got on the bandwagon. I even caught him watching MKBHD's review without anybody else around. He was just on his iPad and he'd looked it up, which is really interesting. And he said to me later, Dad, I find all this stuff so fascinating. I want to see more of these Apple product announcements. And that, you know, homeschool vibe put us on a deep dive. And we went back and watched the 
announcement, the full keynote of the iPhone launch. And man, I was watching this, you know, however many years on and the hype, I was feeling excited, you know, I was like, going, yes, yes. And I was like almost cheering with the crowd. And when he's going, when Steve Jobs is, is saying, you know, an, an iPod touchscreen and the crowd, like they're, they're like cheering and stuff. And then he goes, a phone. And everyone's like, yeah, I remember that because there were like, concepts and there was i remember this particular youtube video this is what an apple phone could look like it was such an exciting time and i think that the vision pro captures some of that specifically the moment when steve jobs puts his finger oh man the showmanship though he he goes that's not the iphone he takes it out of his pocket i've got one right here but we'll get back to that and he puts it back in his pocket love it anyway <laughs> when he when he swipes to unlock and he sort of does it slowly and he shows how the finger controls the screen directly and that was just a moment that was amazing nobody had ever thought of anything like this before and even though the first iPhone, it was it was great for its time. It wasn't a great device. I feel like there's a lot in common with the Vision Pro and Vision OS. And what you're describing with being able to look at something and touch and how you said that that came quite intuitively, I think that that is very, very similar to being able to just swipe on an iPhone touchscreen. That is the thing that gives me some excitement about this, right? Because this is like a developer kit. People have often said the first iPhone wasn't really ready for prime time. The 3G or the 3GS were, were the iPhones that were just solid. 3GS, it was solid. That was where it was ready for the masses. This isn't really ready for the masses, but on the same point, both my kids, my 10-year-old and my 6-year-old, are asking, they're chomping at the bit to try this thing because they both tried the Oculus and they think it's fantastic. They just think it's so cool. And they're they're wanting to know what's the thing that Apple's going to do because they like their iPads. They they know their parents have iPhones. They're, they are just genuinely excited to see what would Apple do with this. And I do, this was another take I heard on one of the podcasts that I appreciated. Um, there's this sense that some Apple employees are nervous, that they're doing something that could fail. And in a way, that's really exciting that they are doing something that might not work, which means they're taking a risk, which means it has the potential to be something great. Now, it, it might completely fall on its face and we might all laugh about this, but it is a risk. And I think that has nerds like me excited to see something like this coming out. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, <laughs> it is the equivalent of my 12.9 inch iPad strapped to the front of my face, pulling me down. It is so heavy. <laughs> It is incredibly dense. But if you take those things away, you had the mouse pointer on the Mac. You had the finger touch on the iPhone. You had the scroll wheel on the iPod. You have look and then squeeze your fingers together. It is a great natural interaction, and it feels like something that I just immediately got. How about that moment when Steve Jobs takes uh, shows the, the slide with the iPhone, and he says, so it's and the whole thing's a screen. You need some way of interacting with it, right? So how about a stylus? And he puts the stylus up on the screen. And then he's like, nah, <laughs> get rid of the stylus. That's such a good moment too. I, I think everyone should go back and rewatch this. It is peak showmanship from Jobs. He is, he's such a good salesman. 
I have rewatched that multiple times over the years. Not the whole thing. I probably should go back and watch the whole thing, but just that reveal. It's one of my favorite. Well, it is my favorite product demo of all time. It's so perfectly done, and um, it really ushered in a new era. And we'll see where this one goes. Uh, but for now, I'm really excited that I get to try it, and I'm going to see if it's something I can work with. Uh, question marks. Well, I'll have more to share next week once we get further. I mean, it's exciting to see Apple finally taking some risks. Like, it just seems like they haven't taken any risks in the last like. 10 years or so like ai is pulling ahead vr is pulling ahead and so i resonate with your two kids like they have apple products apple always makes the best of stuff and for them to, and oculus has always kind of felt a little cheap and ahead of the curve uh, and and not in a good way um so yeah seeing what apple's going to come out with like as soon as i heard that they were putting out a, an answer to vr i was stoked i was like okay we're finally here like vr is finally here but like anything else we're not here yet, and um, we may still be annoyed with Apple for it for a little while. And um, yeah, speaking of being annoyed with Apple, we're gonna keep. Uh, we still have some more, <laughs> some more takes on this uh, anti-steering thing. Fifteen percent, thirty percent. Apple's take out of it. There's still so much debate about it. I don't. It's not so much that I I want to air my grievances. This isn't Festivus. <laughs> it's more that I genuinely. <laughs> There is a mainstream opinion that I'm hearing everywhere and people just naturally agree with it, right? Like, it's terrible that Apple takes 30%. Of course they should take less. Of course this should be regulated. And I'm really not seeing a lot of arguments about why it's so bad. And I just genuinely don't understand it. I think it's on its face ridiculous. So actually, this isn't me ranting. This is you trying to convince me or no, don't don't convince me. Just tell me what are people thinking? Why why are people so upset with Apple's 30% take? 15% take, if you will. I think you and I Sadi have both probably listened to all the same podcasts with people we both respect and trust and have been following um, for a long time who have talked about this and they've gone through the technical details. Um, we've, we've mentioned multiple ones on the podcast already. I, I talked last week about Ben Thompson's take and that he disagrees with Apple, but he also, they're ultimately right to do it. Um, and then having taken all this in and having thought about it for weeks, I, I texted you back that I, I do kind of agree with you that we may be going too far with this. And the biggest counterpoint that I have heard is that you have had Mac developers who were around before the App Store ever started. And people would buy a Mac for the Windows Office software, the Office software. They would buy a Mac for these indie apps that really made it what it was. And so Apple kind of does owe it a bit to the, the OG developers for existing. And there is something there that I really do resonate with. And I, I agree. Panic is like, hey, we, we were here before the App Store ever existed, making fantastic Mac apps that many of you still know and love. I, I used them before the App Store existed. That take I do resonate with. So I think, though, that this is like Apple in every other category. They are never first. And Android lambasts them. Windows often lambasts them like, oh, we had this feature years ago. Apple's so silly. They, why didn't they come out with it? By the time Apple does something, they often have figured out the way that it works for the masses or the way that it works for creatives or the way that it works, off, frankly, the best. So 
they were not first to making um, to selling apps or having any kind of an app store. But when they did it, they did do it in the best way that created an ecosystem and created the ability for people to safely buy apps and safely purchase that did not exist for the masses. Yeah, I bought apps on little websites before the iPhone came around, but most people did not. So where people get frustrated is Apple is not technically correct that they were the originators of things like app stores. However, for 99% of people... That was their first experience, and they so they kind of feel some ownership to having created these things. Um, and that's where I actually do love Apple, that they, by the time they come around with something, they've often thought about it in a way that, oh, duh, this makes sense. I wasn't putting these pieces together myself. I was doing it in kind of a hacky way. All that's to say, I think I do feel frustration that they seem to reclaim history in a way that I don't fully agree with. But I can also see it from their perspective that they kind of did it better than anyone had done before. I don't see how Apple's ownership of the concept of an app store is relevant to the argument that they deserve a 15%, 30% take. When, by the way, for listeners, 15-30 is referring to 15% uh, under, I think it's a million in revenue, and after that, 30%. That's how the app store fees are structured. <laughs> for most of us, it's always going to be 15%. A company like Panic was making Mac apps well before the App Store. That's true. And they built a business on it. They were compensated for it by selling their apps directly to consumers. And it was fantastic. Good for them. I'm glad they had the opportunity. So then Apple invented a whole new platform, invented a new device, and said, if you want to develop for this, you can. And it will be a 15 or 30% fee. Apple can set that fee however they want. And they decided, we think that in order to build a app business, we think the balance between developers being able to earn money off this and us making a return on all of the investment that we put into the space and being able to sustainably continue development on it is 30%. If they wanted, Apple could charge... 99.99%, 100%. And what would happen? Developers would say, that's too much. We can't build a business on that. We don't like it. It makes us upset. And so we're going to stop developing for your platform. Or they could set the fee at 1%, 0%. And developers would say, yes, we're all on board. This is great. We want to develop for your platform. And Apple wouldn't make any services revenue from it. And so... At 30%, this is the balance that Apple has the right to decide on. And if developers don't like it, then they can show Apple that they don't like it. They can demonstrate with their actions instead of complaining about it on podcasts that, no, this is too high. This is too onerous. I'm out. So I do not think there is a problem with developers complaining. That, frankly, that is their right to do as well, right? It is Apple's right to say, this is what we have. It is also within journalists' right to say, we don't think this is fair. That's completely fine, and both of them are completely in their rights to do so, at least from my American perspective, right? I think the thing that you're um, pushing back on is Apple ought not to do this. Instead, where I think it's completely fine is I don't like that Apple is doing that. I think those are a different thing, and that's where you can have a good discussion, where 
Apple has actually changed rules in the past when a journalist has come around and, and called them out for it, and then they'll soften things. And so sometimes that does help. What doesn't help, and where Apple, they actually um, thanked the Japanese Trade Commission for privately handling uh, a frustrating situation. They came out with some with a deal that worked in Japan. Um, so I think it's more, I'm not trying to st- strong arm Apple, but maybe I'm trying to just share some concerns I have to make it better. The thing that really frustrates me isn't so much developers complaining because fine it is completely reasonable to say hey apple 30 percent is pushing it i'm gonna stick around but geez i'm not happy something better change and maybe 30 percent could come down and that would make me happier all right good that's that's great that's the market communicating but what i also see happening is people just saying look obviously this sort of rate should be legislated. We can't just let Apple set the 30%. We have to step in. That's what I find problematic. Worse still is when people start telling me that Apple has some sort of monopoly power, and that's why we need to legislate. I've I've heard very, very smart people accuse Apple of having a monopoly on the App Store, and that just seems absolute nuts to me. That's just... that That makes no sense... How can Apple possibly have a monopoly on its own software? It's like saying Panic has a monopoly on Transmit. I think I'm going to soften the, my your stance on this a little bit from my perspective. I get the frustration of you are a creative person who's building an app. You're an independent person. You like what I did there, Luke? You're an independent person who is going about and trying to make a business to sell and get someone to care about your app. And then you run up against this company that often has, they're very clear in the 30%, so there's no discrepancy there. But often there's uncertainty about what I can and can't do, and you start to run into weird little things with app review where things do not get in and get in. And I think the 30% is an easy thing to look at and just vent your frustration when there's so many other things that you are trying to deal with and trying to (laughs) figure out how to build a business And I think the thing that you're frustrated with, Sadia, is this spirit of entitlement where um, I should get whatever I want and Apple should just kowtow to to me because it's the right thing to do without actually explaining why that would be the right thing to do. Well, good points all around. Good points all around. Uh, We're going to do a hard pivot and go to talk about um, more design aspects, uh, less philosophy, more design. Jeffrey Zeldman is someone that I've I've actually been following and breeding now for what fifteen years. I I really I like just his spirit of kind of one of the OG people who got the web to where it is today. So I just have so much respect for him. He actually also is a former colleague of mine, which is a hilarious thing to say. We we worked at the same company for a short period of time at Automatic, and he just had a little article this week from a list apart about why he's a creative, he's not an artist. And I'm not actually going to talk about the article that much. Um, I more want to just use my own spin on it for my own thoughts that I've had for a while, that um, I have heard designers talk about this and they have different opinions on it. But at the end of the day, I'm someone, me as designer Joshua, that likes to get out there and build something and make things. But I also have to make things within constraints in the market. I have to make things that users will find benefit from. And I get to be creative. I get to go build things. But I don't get to be 
and this is what Jeffrey Zeldman calls out, like Andy Warhol, where I get to just throw stuff on a, a canvas and then someone will pay me. That's that's unfortunately not the world I exist in. I actually think I would enjoy that. That was kind of my bent as a child where I was starting to head. And then I quickly realized I had no concept of how I would make a career with that. So I pivoted to, I'll design things that I know will will pay me money. However, I still do try, and I think many developers fall into this field where, yes, I have a remit that I must build to, but if I just do that all day, it, it just sucks my the soul out of me. So I find little ways to put my creativity in, into my craft, to really hone these little details, whether it's a tiny little affordance, whether it's a checkbox, whether it's a button, I'm just there to try to enjoy how I'm building things. So that's all just kind of a rant to say that um, the only way I will keep doing this 20 years from now is if I get to just keep exploring and kind of have fun with it and not always feel like I'm just working against some data monster that's trying to <laughs> make this design 5% better than that one so that it will sell more Facebook ads. I'm curious, Joshua, What's that's really cool. What's your uh, version of... Um... You know, like a kid gets into Minecraft and creates his world and he just loves like building it and creating it out and just seeing what'll happen, what'll stick. And it's just this really cool outlet for creating. What's the comparable outlet in the design sphere of like, you know, you said like designing a button or designing a some kind of new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. What's the avenue to design to build that and then like to show it off and be like, oh, this is a really cool thing I made. What does that look like? Yeah, for me, I started out as a graphic designer. So that used to be different. And I would have answered this differently if I was still a graphic designer. Um, often it's like the super creative posters that you see kids in college put for their finals. Yeah, right. right. Like the, the music band posters. That would have been me years ago. Um, but now that I'm, I design software for a living and apps for a living, um, the, mo the thing that gets me the most fired up and the most excited is to take what feels like an impossible problem. And th these things come across... I was going to say desk, but that sounds like I'm from the 60s. These things come across my, my plate quite often where I need to figure out how to make an app that solves this problem, but I've got 50 constraints and they all conflict with each other. And that actually is far more exciting to me than any of the little pieces like the, the buttons or the text. I, I'll do those. I kind of like those, but not as much as this thing feels impossible. Let me sit with it. So... I then pull out my iPad. I've opened up currently Freeform. I've tried all the different sketching apps. I, I, on my computer, I pull up all my notes and I get a bunch of different visuals on there, which is why I'm excited about the Vision Pro to have a 30-foot screen in front of me with everything just around me in, in a half circle. I'll get reference uh, designs for other apps. And then I'll just put on maybe some good music and shut off all notifications and I just think and I start sketching and I start playing with this impossible problem and seeing if there's a way that I can sketch an app out of it. That makes me come alive. That's why I'm a designer today. And I feel like every other part of my job, except I will, there's one exception, but every other part of my job exists so that I get to do that. And if I can only do that a half hour in a day, sometimes I'm happy. Like that was enough for me. But a good day is where maybe I have several hours of just getting to do that. And then when I pop back up, I feel so alive. The other part of that is I've had some colleagues over the time where I connect so well with them and they challenge me to be better by looking at what I've made and saying, hey, Joshua, did you think about this? Did you try this? And that like forces me back into, oh, that's a constraint I wasn't aware of. Let me improve on it. So that um, 
that is what I get so passionate about and I love. And that's just one of my favorite things to do. Um, and that's where I feel like a creative when I'm doing that. I love it. Uh, I was just so curious because I was thinking, you know, as a developer, like it, it feels like I have a more tangible ability to create something interesting and show it off to people, you know, kind of a situation. When I'm developing, it's I always do wish I had some kind of UX designer that was kind of doing my stuff for me because I'm just like, oh, I need to do this thing. I need to do that thing. And I'm more thinking about the code. And then my UI just kind of looks like, why is there a button over there that does that? And why are there more buttons over here? And why is there like a view within a view within a view? And I'm like, oh, somebody get me a UX designer. So your those creative moments of yours are are much loved. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm no, just now noticing Sadia's uh, cry for help in our show notes here. He crossed out everything out in the list and he said, let's finish this up, please. It's really hot here in the caravan. Aircon is too loud. Windows are closed. I'm about to pass out. Send a gel. Let's end. We don't want Sadia having a stroke. We'll, we'll yeah, get yeah, back yeah. to the rest next week. <laughs> Sadia had some good points today and uh, we don't want to fry his brain. Well, thank you all so much for joining us for another episode uh, of Ultra Pro Max. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email to uh, email at ultrapromax.fm. We'd love to hear topic suggestions or hear your take on some of the topics we talked about today. We'll be back next week. So thank you so much for joining us, everybody. See you next week.